What's going on, guys? This is your host, Fred Stokes, and I want to welcome you to our Lent Brother podcast. I have the pleasure of having someone on the show who I met just a, a brief time ago. I was actually at a uh, UCF football game. In particular, they had the um, uh, sober tailgate party, and I was there and uh, got an opportunity to meet this this guy and heard his story. And I thought, man, not only did I enjoy hearing his story, I'm like, the world needs to hear his story. Britt, thank you for coming on, man. Absolutely, Fred. Thanks for having me on the show. Very happy to uh, be here, and it was great to meet you, and thanks for coming out and supporting the event at uh, at UCF. I know the students had a great time out there. Well, I had a blast, man. UCF is amazing. They're, what, 60,000 strong or something yeah, like 68, that? 68,000 now, one of the largest number one or two, you know, universities in, in the country, so it's... Uh, it's amazing the work and the different things that they're doing out there. You know, I went to Georgia Southern back in the day, and we had, I think, like 7,200 students or something like that. And you're talking about 60-something thousand students. I could not imagine, man. That's a whole city. It is. And and when I was there back in 89, you know, when I started, um, I think there's like 25,000 students. But Georgia Southern, like, we played you guys every year. That was that That was a – that was certainly a rivalry for us back in the day. And all I remember is us winning. I don't know. Um, so. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start from the top, man. Where'd you grow up at? When I was uh, seven, we moved from Illinois to Naples, Florida. And man, the very first day that we were in Naples, I was like, Mom and Dad, thank you. You know, even at seven, like I knew, you know, the house was, you know, you could walk to the beach, although probably like half a mile or so. It was just so different than Pekin, Illinois, you know, home of Caterpillar back then. That that very first day, it was just like, wow, this is a completely new life. And even at seven, like I said, I knew this was this was a much different place to live. So that's right. So you mentioned that you grew up with your mom and dad, sisters and brothers. I mean, what did your home dynamics? Yep, I have a like? uh, I have an older brother and I have an older sister. So uh, I'm I'm the baby. I was the accident child that happened in the family. So, but, uh, between my brother and I, there's about 13 years. And then my sister is about five years older than me. You know, we all grew up and, and, uh, we're in the house, um, together with, with the parents until after a couple of years of moving down, my brother was old enough to, to move out. We had a good close knit family. But how was that dynamic between you and your father? So my dad was a very hard worker, but a really quiet man. He wasn't, outwardly emotional you know he wasn't like I always knew that he loved me you know but he wasn't that person you know every day to be like hey you know love you let's keep having fun let's keep keep doing what we're doing with the family it wasn't necessarily like that you know he he was that strong figure but definitely on the quiet side he did tell you he loved you periodically he just wasn't that warm, fuzzy, huggy kind of guy. Right. It, yeah, that, that wasn't it all the time, no. And you grew up in the 70s, 80s? Because you, yep. you look pretty young from, from where I'm looking at. Yeah, no. <laughs> I, was born in, uh, I was born in 1970, so. Okay, you grew up in the 70s. Yeah. But you got to think, too, and the reason I ask, because uh, men of that era, some of the, a lot of those guys weren't that huggy, touchy-feely because their parents were and their parents' parents weren't. Right, and no, it's just, absolutely. Yeah, it's like, hey, I take care of the family. I provide uh, for shelter, food, and clothing. You know I love you. No, yeah. that's exactly exactly how it was. And, you know, I enjoyed the times that we got to, to spend together. Before I started school, I remember 
spending the day off with, you know, when he had his day off during, during the week and then the weekends, you know, spending time. But again, it was certainly different than what I see a lot of, of fathers, you know, doing now. And it's also different from how I am trying to be a father to, to my boys. Is that a direct reflection of that? Or are you trying to contra? And there's there's obviously, I mean, you talked about him being a hard worker, so there's obviously some good things, a lot of good things that he did, but are you pulling from some of those things as well as, you know, some of the stuff you're going, you know what, I wish I could have done this with my dad, so I'm, therefore I'm going to do it with my kids? Absolutely. You know, and I'm a competitive person overall too, so, you know, there there were things growing up that I would see that I would say, you know, when I'm a dad, I'm going to try and change this. So only a couple times did my dad and I go out and throw the ball in, in the front yard. You know, we spent a lot of time like swimming in the pool and, and, you know, spending family time, but like time with just he and I like doing sports and stuff, you know, we didn't necessarily do that. So I grew up playing competitive tennis and he, you know, never really played tennis. Like I said, we, we threw baseball a couple times in the front yard and I remember those times because the, it, there weren't many of them. Um, so, you know, now with my kids, you know, I'm always trying to, to throw the ball with them, throw the football, um, throw the baseball and, you know, just enjoy time with them without having any expectations of trying to accomplish anything except for just being in the moment. Wow, that's good. What, was he at your uh, any of your matches or any of those? Oh, games? yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I mean, again, like for the things that have happened in my life, it, it certainly for me wasn't because of my parents, because, um, you know, it was very loving structure. When my dad passed, they'd been married for 52 years, you know, and obviously you're going to have some better years than than others. But uh, being able to see how they were and how they made it through the tough times. Uh, certainly gave me hope even at a young age, knowing that, hey, listen, life's going to happen to all of us, and uh, we're going to have to deal with scenarios and situations, and it's not always going to be easy, um, but that we can get through it and that the relationships can, can still prevail. So I certainly got that from them, seeing that while growing up. That's good. And your, and your other siblings, they're still with us? They're still living? Yep. And my mom's still alive. So my mom is... Uh, 80, I like to say my mom's 87 going on 16, so, you know, she's doing great. They just got back from uh, traveling to, uh, to Hawaii, um, but my, uh, my father had passed away in 2009. Okay, well, good for her, man, that she's still traveling, still has a right mind and, and knows what's, what's going on. Yeah, she's active, you know, goes to exercise a few days a week at the church and, you know, things of that nature. Good for your mom and her. And, and, uh, how long have you been married? So Kathy and I just uh, celebrated 13 years. Congratulations, Thanks. man. And got two kids, right? Okay. Yep. So you, uh, you met Parker and Decker. Parker's 10. Decker is, uh, is seven. And uh, man, having two boys, it is a lot. <laughs> well, you know what? I've got three boys. And, and yeah, Decker, man, that's, that's the guy. He's, he's going to be Mr. Personality. Isn't he? <laughs> yeah, we think he's going to be a politician. Par Parker's going to be an engineer. He's going to design things. But Decker, we think, is going to be a politician. He's never met a stranger, that's for sure. That's, that's right, man. We were on a show uh, before, and, and uh, 
he was on the mic, man. He just kind of took over. He was like, Dad, I got this. I can answer my own questions, make my own statements. <laughs> yeah, he was. He may Say, not need a press Saying that he term. could remember his uh, first birthday, that he, that he had a good memory. That was hilarious. Yeah, he did say that. <laughs> no, no, I have a great memory, Dad. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's awesome with those, with those boys. And so you mentioned earlier, too, that you went to, you actually attended um, UCF. Yep, I went to UCF. So I started there in fall of 89. And I graduated in uh, December of 93. I started pre-med, and uh, that lasted a semester. So I, I pulled a 1.6 my first semester, and that, that was the end of, uh, you know, wanting to be a doctor. So then uh, went on into political science and uh, got my degree from there in, in December of 93 in political science. Why UCF? It was kind of that up-and-coming school. And I wanted to go somewhere where, you know, maybe I wasn't quite a number. I went to orientation there and fell in love with it, where it was a large campus, although there was a lot more open space then than, than there is now because a lot of the buildings are, you know, new since I was there. But it still had that small feel to it. And I liked the, the you know, Orlando was completely different than the small city of Naples, Florida. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you were there as they were starting to win. You mentioned uh, uh, Georgia Southern. I remember playing those guys and you're thinking UCF, University of Central Florida. You talked about UCF not being too big or too overwhelming. Uh, you also mentioned that you went there as a pre-med student. What changed? What happened? Yeah, so that first semester, I probably I was not sober very many days. Um, during that semester, I was probably intoxicated more than I was sober, which made it really hard to get up and, and get to classes. It made it hard to study. Or if I was studying, you know, might as well have a drink while I'm studying. And then the next thing you know, you're not studying anymore. I was all about the social aspect of college and class and actually doing work was was getting in the way. Now, let me ask you why, because you grew up in this area, so to speak. Normally, that happens with kids sometimes that have constrictive home lives where they can never go out, never party uh, to a certain degree, and they go farther away from home, and so they're in a college in a whole nother state. I mean, why why was it so much partying going on? Were you part of fraternity or something, or you were trying to be? Yeah, no, so um, I pledged my first uh, semester, but it had started before that you know, even in high school. And, and I was, I was the kid in high school where, you know, every time I drank, it was to be drunk. You know, uh, I was never that person that would go out and have one or two drinks. That was never in the cards for me. Um, so starting in high school kind of would progress. And then once I got into, uh, college where, I didn't have anybody looking over my shoulder or saying anything. You know, I remember one time in, in high school um, getting drunk. I threw up. It was all over the room. And my mom's like, well, you know, I know you feel really bad. You know, I know you're hurting today. You have what's called a hangover. And uh, uh, I'm sure you won't do this again. And I was like, yeah, I'm absolutely. I'm not going to do it again until the following weekend. Mm -hmm. You know, so mm -hmm. I knew even at a younger age that I didn't drink normally like other people. But you didn't realize that, you, that it was a problem because it was partying. In college, we call, and the other thing, hey, let's, let's go party. Let's have a great time. We're going to laugh. We're going to talk trash. So what can be miserable about partying? In essence, the way you made that statement is you're saying that there was just more of the same. There was more partying, more 
like you said, the, the, the restraints have been removed. So Absolutely. you can do it any time you want it. Yeah, I could, you know, I didn't have to hide alcohol around the house or anything like that. Um, you know, I could walk around with it and, and you know, um, that was part of the difference. But I was in really no condition to perform well academically that year. But one of the things that, that I would do was, you know, I started getting involved on campus and, and with the university early on because, to me, if I'm involved and I'm doing things, I'm not a problem drinker. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm involved and uh, I'm in IFC, the Interfraternity Council, helping, you know, govern the Greek system and, you know, all of these things, as well as surrounding myself. Uh, you know, I made sure that my friends like to go out because that would help me feel better about myself and that would allow me to be able to drink and not have to worry about oh am I drinking too much because I would I would pick the guys that were the guys that like to do the shots you know that like to go to church street and do you know nickel beers or ten dollars all you can drink or you know whatever it was I pretty much had my my routine of which place had the best deal on what night of the week to be able to go out you know what, man, that's interesting you're saying that. So you picked your friends or you associated with those guys where what really was abnormal was normal because everybody was doing it. You know, after a little bit of time, everybody's like, whoa, listen, like you need to slow down. You need to you need to take a break. First time that people really started talking about that to me was in college where they were like, hey, we were all having fun last night. Like you don't remember anything that happened after, you know, 830, you probably are going to want to scale it back a little bit. So I would say to myself, absolutely. You know what? You're right. Thank you for saying that. And then I started learning that at times I wasn't capable of, of doing that. It's bad when you have drunk guys telling you that you are too drunk too early. <laughs> absolutely. I was that guy that would be passed out early all the time because I was zero to hundred every time okay there, there was no in between early on freshmen i think all of all freshmen to us to a certain degree man they're wilding out right it's my first time away from home they're, as you say there are no bars there are no barriers there's no curfew when did it, those voices external voices started become the internal voices where you say hey bro maybe maybe something is wrong maybe i do need to you know at least not drink every day or at least wait till 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock before I pass out. When did it, when did the external become the internal and you started hearing your own voices? Um, I went down swinging for, for a long time. Um, you know, I see guys that get sober early. Now, a lot of the work that I do at, at UCF and the endowment that my wife and I have at uh, UCF with the kids. Last Thursday, I was there and one of them was talking about how hard it is being sober in college and, and how hard it is getting sober at such a young age. And I sat across from him and I said, listen, next week I'm going to be 49. And I go, I wish I would have gotten sober back when, when you did. So, you know, those external voices, I really didn't listen to them that much. I would try and rationalize everything, normalize it. And uh, everything that I did, you know, because I was surrounding it with, alcohol and and people who were partying and and here's the thing like not every guy partied all the time you know so I would have to strategically plan out my week you know based on other people's class schedules to know uh you know all right well I know so-and-so can go out tonight so we're gonna go out you know and and 
you know, that that's just kind of, of how I, I did it. To me, I just kept saying, well, you're not an alcoholic because, you, you know, you're you're doing all these things. But it started at an early age. And unfortunately for me, I didn't get sober until, you know, I was I was in my early 40s. Um, but uh, so it, it was a long road. And I would have times I would get it together for a while. And, you know, people would say now, like, oh, you were high functioning at, at that point in time. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think there, there, there was just a lot of, of time, memories, effort, everything that was wasted and more focused on alcohol than it was, you know, the rest of my life. You know what? It's interesting you're saying this too, Brett, because as I sit and listen to you, I'm thinking, right, and I've even talked to myself, I mean, I was a... I was a party hard guy. I mean, I didn't do any heavy drugs, but I was partying like a rock star, drinking, you know, nonstop. Uh, but there were times when I, I started hearing external voices going, hey, man, remember you were talking to this girl? Or, and I'm saying, oh, yeah, yeah, man. And in my mind, I'm going, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. And so those moments, I even shared that with my own boys, my, my three sons, is that when it got to a point in my life where, I wasn't remembering all of the dialogue that was going on after the fact. It was to the point where I'm like, okay, bruh, something's wrong. I wish that I, that that would have been me. You know, I, I said, I'm sorry and tried to fill in the blanks on conversations for 25 years. Do you think you were too far down the road, but you had rationalized so long that you were like, that you were like, you know, I'm good. I'm okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I haven't hurt anybody. haven't killed anybody. Nobody's killed me. Right. Uh, haven't been arrested. You know, I would always uh, say to my wife, like, you know, if everybody would just leave me alone, everything would be okay. You know, Kathy was basically a, a single mom because I'd be passed out by, you know, 730 each night. And near the end, before I went into uh, to treatment, if I passed out, like Kathy wasn't waking me up saying, come on, come upstairs. She just let, leave me there yes. Where, wherever it was like, that was it. That's where I, I was until I woke up in the, in the middle of the night and we're like, oh man, I guess I, you know, guess I drank too much again, again. Yeah. yeah. So it was not hitting you. Well, now let's get down to the length. Was there ever a time in your life where you felt like giving up, turning around or that you weren't going to make it? Absolutely. It was the 2012, 2013 were brutal years. And again, I was like, well, you know, I have a wife, I have kids, I have a house, I have a company, you know, I got all these things. So I remember some mornings, my wife, you know, being like, oh, you really drank too much last night. And and one time in particular, she looked at me afterward that morning and she was like, you just need to man up and stop drinking so much. And I was like, yeah, you're right, 100%. But I just wasn't capable of, of doing it. I, I tell the story that every morning, if you would have hooked me up to a lie detector machine and I said, I'm not going to drink today, I would have passed. Because when I woke up, I didn't want to drink that day. But as you start going through the day and you start feeling a little bit better, then the, the physical addiction, the mental starts kick, kicking in, you know, by 3.30, I knew that I was going to be drinking. I'd already kind of thrown in the towel for the day. And it was just like Groundhog Day over and over again. But yeah, I absolutely probably would have passed that lie detector test each time. But I wasn't in control anymore at, at that point. You know, alcohol was, was in control and not me. So 
But you actually believe that that morning up until 3.30, 4 o'clock, you really believe in everything in you that I'm going to be okay today. Absolutely. Like wow. today's going to be the day and today's going to start and I'm going to gonna do this. So as things were getting bad, I remember, um, you know, my wife's like, listen, you're going to have to go see somebody about this. And so I started seeing a uh, addiction therapist that, of course, I wasn't open and honest to in the beginning. You know, I started doing things like, um, you know, AA meetings, but I was still drinking every single day. I would even drink on the way to a meeting. Sometimes I would act like my phone's ringing. And I had to go out to my car and, and you know, take a sip and, and then go back in. Or, you know, if I made it through the meeting, I'd have to hit the liquor store on the way home. You know, it was almost like I was using AA as a cover to try and get away with drinking for a little bit longer. But I, I could feel, as Kathy wasn't working full-time, um, she was working part-time, she was home with the kids, um, I knew that that time was starting to come to a head. And as I continued to blow through every barrier that was put up, you know, finally she decided that um, she was going to start looking at, at some help for herself because I don't think she had any hope that I was going to stop. Did she think that you were going all the way through without doing anything? I yeah, mean, in the beginning, it was great. You know, I was like, wow, I could be like, no, honey, I'm just tired. Like, I just came home from an AA meeting. I'm fine. But you were actually intoxicated. Yeah, absolutely. And so as, as she started getting some help of, of learning how to set boundaries and, and that she didn't cause it, she can't cure it and things of that nature, things really started getting tough for me. You know, I had to take alcohol underground, had to hide it you know, behind a paint can in the house. I mean, you know, just crazy stuff. Um, alcohol will compromise you. Addiction in general will compromise who you are as a person. So she was like, you, you need to get out of the house. Let, let's try a week. And I don't care where you go, but you're not going to be here. So I did the week, um, you know, wrote her this letter to get back into the house. Um, now, what happened during that week? No drinking. No, I did every day. Oh, my goodness. But, you know, said that I wasn't, you know, um, went to my therapist and told him it was a good week. You know, I hadn't been drinking. Um, he's like, uh, he said, don't write this letter and don't try and get back into the house unless you're really ready. Well, in my mind, I was ready. A week is good. But I wasn't. <laughs> and, and really that week, like there were, there was not a day that I truly stayed sober. So wrote the letter, got back in the house, and I think like two days later, you know, I was intoxicated to a point where I couldn't hide it. So I went went to bed, and I remember waking up the next morning, and uh, I went downstairs, and Kathy was downstairs, and, uh, you know, I remember her looking at me saying, you know, I love you, but you're going to have to move out. You're going to have to move out for good until you really get a hold of this situation, which you may or you may not. And uh, my first thought was, wow, this is awesome. I can get my own place. I can drink as much as I want, and no one's going to say anything to me. You're hiding stuff behind the paint can. You're making compromise. You're going to AA. You're doing all these things. At, so at no point in time do you did it click to say, something is truly wrong with me. Like, I need to get real help, not superficial help, and not just for a week. And then now you're saying you get ready to move out and this is going to be great? Really? Absolutely. And right after I had that thought, thank God I had this moment of clarity where I said, 
oh my God, you're going to die. So the first thought you had was, this is great. I'm going to be able to drink as much as I want to without interactions or interruptions was your first thought. But shortly thereafter, you said. Right after that, because that was the thought that I had, I literally went, oh my God, I'm going to die. And I knew that probably within six months or so on my own, that's probably all it would have would have taken. It was literally like a bottom and a new beginning with two thoughts. And that, that one thought triggered the beginning where I said, okay, I'll go to treatment, I'll get help. Um, and within, you know, like a week or so after that, I was put into a medical detox unit and then uh, left the medical detox and was put into a recovery center for uh, for 30 days. Now, that's different than AA, right? Because oh, well, you were going to AA and that was like nothing. I'm good here. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, I was lying to everyone at that point in time. And, and that's where it was like, you know, addiction really compromises who you are mm-hmm. because that that's just not me. And in hindsight, being 2020, looking back, it's like all these problems that, that happened and incidents over the year and everything, like they were all alcohol related. Those things were not who I really was on the inside, but alcohol and the addiction for me had taken so much out for so long that I no longer really knew what the insides looked like. And, and so when I went to treatment and actually spent some time sober and your mind starts to clear. I remember thinking, going into treatment, I don't know why I'm going. It's not that bad. After some some days sober and starting to have some clarity, I was like, man, I don't know why I said it isn't that bad. Like it's much worse. Yeah. And yeah. and that was a that was a tough realization. And and I think that's a hard part for a lot of people early in sobriety is when they get sober from all the things that they were trying to numb that just kept getting worse and worse and worse that realization of wow I've really hurt a lot more people you know the family unit there's no trust and things of that nature you realize man it it was much worse than than what I thought and you were able to realize that only after you were sober for a bit to say my life was a wreck and I wrecked other people's lives because I was reckless right yeah it probably took me you know seven to ten days of not drinking to, you know, really kind of have the mind start to clear a little bit. But, you know, by the time that, that I got to treatment, I was beat down because love my wife, love my boys. They weren't enough to keep me sober for one day, not for one single day. You know, and I hear people talk about, oh, well, you know, my kids this or my wife just nags me. Like, I truly love and worship my wife and my kids, all my family. And uh, that was no for alcohol. Man, that is so good. I hope I hope that people that, the men especially that are listening to this podcast hear that part, that those external uh, barriers, if you will, was no match for what was happening internally in your mind. Because you, at the moment, you just could not see it. You couldn't see the hurt. You couldn't see the pain. You couldn't see the destruction that was happening all around you because you were single-mindedly focused on, I'm okay. Absolutely. I was just focused on how am I going to get the alcohol into my body? And thank God that I didn't try and quit cold turkey for a few days because I needed medical detox. You know, I I very well could have, you know, had a seizure or, or anything at that point in time. So everything happens for a reason. Everything plays out the way that, that it needs to. And, you know, God has, uh, 
has certainly taken care of me through through a lot of that. And when I look back at everything that happened to get me into treatment, you know, I remember writing in a journal my first day in detox and it was uh, me and there were like four or five women in there. They were all on methadone trying to come down. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is what my life has become to. This is like the worst day of my life. I look back on that day outside of getting married to Kathy and, and you know, uh, the, the birth of my boys is, is one of the best days of my life now. Wow, that's really good, Brent. That's really good. You know what? You, you talked about how you had guys uh, specifically that you, you, you targeted, so to speak that you knew were going to be your partners, your ride or dies when you were drinking. On the sober side now, and this is more or less what, what we talk about on this podcast, Lent, brother, life I never tell, do you now have or, or trying to strategically have men in your life that have that same mindset that you have now that are not those, we're going to go have a party, we have a good time, but we're going to remember everything we did and we're not going to trash anything, we're not going to destroy anything. Uh, especially other people's lives and things around us. Being able to look back now, uh, some of those guys that I ran with in, in college, once college was over, you know, that was it for them. They just went on and, and that phase of their life was was done and it wasn't an issue for me. Unfortunately, you know, I kept the I kept the party going. Now in recovery, you know, there are it's such a strong group of men that are in my life that know everything the friendships are completely authentic the conversations are in the moment and the conversations are about experiences whether you know painful or fabulous or just in between right the nothing wrong with the middle of the boat when when you 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 come out of what I came out of it's great to have those guys in your life to be able to to have those conversations with, to run things by. Like, hey, I'm thinking about this. Is that crazy? And they're like, listen, man, like that that's not a good idea. Or, you know, may, maybe you need to take a look at that a little bit more because I have friends now that will say, well, what are your motives behind wanting to do A, B, or C? And I'll be like, huh. Like when I was younger, you know, I had great friendships. But it was more about like things that we were going to do or things we wanted to buy or, you know, stuff in life we wanted to conquer. It wasn't about the moment and about being, you know, totally ingrained with just who's in front of you. It wasn't the same. You know, now it really is. Man, that's good. That That is the epitome of a Lent brother who's able to ask you those tough questions and and those why questions. And then are, are you sure questions? Do you really want to do this? you know, be honest and authentic. And you said, be open with this. One of the, the recurring themes that I kept remembering when I was going through these struggles was feeling like I'm alone. Like I'm the only person or I'm the first person that this is happening to. And nothing will get a room to come to a complete hush than talking about addiction. Whether it's at, you know, at the university, in the workplace, uh, with the national fraternity, you know, people don't want to talk about it. I'm willing to talk about it because I know there's hope and I've come out on the other side. So since then, uh, Kathy and I have kind of taken the approach of looking at how can we give back. So 
trying to get back on on a few different levels. One of the the things that we're doing to give back is we have an endowment through the UCF Foundation that supports the collegiate re- recovery community there at UCF. One of the things that I've done for uh, Pike for the fraternity nationally is go and and speak at the conferences and conventions and stuff to to let them know like, hey, listen, I'm not saying this is you guys. But listen to this, and if there's anything in here that resonates, you need to talk to somebody. Because if my wife and kids, who I adored, were not enough to keep me from drinking, there's no way that somebody's saying, hey, you know, this is our brotherhood, you know, you got to stop this, or we're going to have to kick you out of the fraternity. They'll probably have the same thoughts like I had, well, I'll be able to go and drink and nobody will say anything about it. So really just trying to give addiction, mental health in general, just all the awareness out there, a voice, because a lot of people just don't want to talk about it. For people who would, are listening to the podcast, like you're not alone. You're not the first person to have to deal with this. Trust me, uh, I've come through it and uh, transforming to what we're doing over in um, Tampa. There's a new men's sober house that's going to be opening up that I will be involved with called um, Malcolm's Place. So a lot of what I'm trying to do to give back is simply to help people. So what are you doing now? Yeah, so uh, I own a company called uh, the Staffing Resource Group. We go by SRG. So we, we basically do contract to hire, direct placement, subcontracting in all facets of staffing, whether it be manufacturing, accounting, and finance, professional, but we have two um, kind of niche areas. One being uh, we work with pharmaceutical companies. We don't really do like pharmaceutical sales. The work that we do with the pharmaceutical companies are like the scientists, the people that are involved in, you know, the formulation and the making of the drugs for the drug company, the clinical um, research trials and things of that nature. And then we have a uh, another side of our business that does uh, work with like uh, DOD prime contractors. So we have a couple of uh, areas that aren't kind of like the normal staffing that somebody might think of. We do work all over the uh, all over the country. We even do some work uh, outside of the the United States as well on. Uh, on the DOD side. So if I wanted to get out of the country, I can go to it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, I tell you what, Britt, I am honored, man, to have sat and talked with you, and I appreciate you sharing to our listeners. And again, I pray that those of you who are out there who listen to this podcast, if you are that guy, or even a female who's listening, if you are that person, you understand that this podcast is, is meant for you to take a deeper look at yourself and see what your surroundings are to make sure, as Britt talked about, you have those people in your life that can be honest with you and open to you and ask you those tough questions. So, Britt, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. And, and again, if you guys are struggling, get help. Enjoy the rest of your day. God bless you and your family, man, and we will be in touch. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicide crisis or emotional distress 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can dial 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 and get the assistance that you need. And guys, please don't hesitate to place that call if you or someone you may know is in need of assistance. 
Always remember, life is too short to focus too long on missed opportunities. Develop a relationship with your Lent brother so you can have a safe place to get down to the Lent and begin to walk in victory and freedom. Thank you guys so much. God bless you.